Ronan Lynch lived with every sort of secret. Prologue, page one, The Dream Thieves. Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Navita. And we're, and we're the, the Raven, Raven Girls. Girls. Welcome to our Raven Circle podcast. Where we talk about seven dysfunctional teenagers and somehow weirdly charming hitmen and all of that violence we've been warning you about. <laughs> This is episode 16, and we're covering the prologue through chapter 3 of The Dream Thieves! Yay, we made it! (laughs) Season 2, season 2 dance, season (laughs) 2 dance, which you guys can't see. (laughs) We will also be taking a deep dive on the tropes and motifs of fairy tales, with particular focus on Celtic myth as related to the Raven Cycle. Yay! This was a really fun deep dive. Yeah, yeah. Disclaimers! This is an analysis podcast. Podcast, and we'll be discussing the Raven Cycle as a cycle. This means we are spoilerific, so you will want to have read the books before listening. We'll use pronunciations from the audiobooks, and page numbers will be referenced from the paperback editions. And a disclaimer from me this podcast does have a Teen Plus rating. There will be canon levels of adult content, including Ronan swearing, 300 Foxway drinking, Kavinsky lewdness, but, well, yes, there will be Grey Mind violence. Mm hmm. <laughs> Okay, let's get on with the show. All right. Oh, it has been a long time. Nice to be back in the saddle again. Yes. So we have the Dream Thieves. And we are going to do a quick character introduction on someone who comes in in this set of chapters. And that would be... The Gray Man. The Gray Man. Dean Allen, as we finally learn what his name is near the end of the book. I had totally forgotten that we actually learned his name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. It's Dean Allen. Um, Yeah. So the Gray Man comes in in this set of chapters as what you would think is the antagonist of the series, mm-hmm. but ends up being a bait and switch. Yep. And we do learn really pretty quickly that he is the man who was set on Niall Lynch mm-hmm. and ended up being the one who killed him. Mm-hmm. So that's in the first chapter that he's in. Right. Is there anything else about Mr. Greyman? Other than the Anglo-Saxon poetry, which we will get to. We will get to the Anglo-Saxon poetry. He also does become a love interest for Maura Sargent, mm-hmm. which their relationship's pretty great, I think. Mm-hmm. And later on in the series, of course, becomes almost like a father figure to Blue or some sort of like a guardian, mm-hmm. especially when Maura is gone in Blue, Lily, Lily Blue. So he ends up becoming a pretty big part of the story mm-hmm. as it unfolds. It's really interesting how he's so, like, nondescript and, like, very specifically the line is like, oh, if I don't use my name, maybe I'll forget it. And can... Right. Yeah, it's, he's a really oddly sad, heartwarming character. Well, and there's <laughs> a whole section right before the 4th of July when Adam is sleeping through after his sort of transformational experience mm-hmm. where the gray man also has sort of a sleep. He sleeps a bunch. He says that he took on the moniker the gray man because of his gray days. So he has Mm. depressive episodes that are just kind of touched on here and there, but he's as complex as every other character. exactly. And he has a reason for the depressive episodes and and all of that. And we'll get into that. He's Mm. probably, oh gosh, you can't say every character is your favorite character, but I do do love him a lot. So Which is odd to say for like, you know, the fact that he's a hitman. (laughs) He is a hitman. (laughs) 
Yes, he does do some terrible things. But <laughs> And then I did want to do a little bit about one of the epigraphs that's at the beginning of the book. And mm-hmm. I figured maybe we could touch on some of the other epigraphs in some later chapters, because I think that they are important that people actually look at how they influence the story. Mm-hmm. So the first one is the Samuel Taylor Coleridge quote about if you were to go to heaven in your dreams and be given a flower uh-huh. and then woke up with the flower in your hands, what would that mean? It's not the original version as found in his writings. It's been passed around for quite some time, though, for at least maybe since the 60s in that version. But Mm -hmm. that's not what he had actually written. I think Coleridge is interesting. He's one of the founding poets of the Romantic era, Mm -hmm. which we won't get into. And then he was also known as one of the Lake Poets, which Mm -hmm. was a group of poets in that time period. It was actually originally a moniker that was kind of a put down, like you depressive (laughs) little so-and-sos like the Lake Poets. And then Mm -hmm. they were from the completely random tie-in, possibly. It's the Lake District of Cumbria, which is where Niall Lynch was born. (laughs) The epigraph, it not only describes the act of bringing things back from your dreams, but also specifically flowers, which is how Ronan determines his father can manifest dream things because he sees the flowers that don't exist in real life on Uh Niall Lynch. And then it's also later what he tells Gansey is the first thing he remembers taking out of his dreams was flowers. flowers. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to touch on that before we get into Mm. the prologue. It's a Ronan POV. Mm -hmm. Like a fairy tale, the history of the Lynch family is laid out for the reader in lyric and motif-heavy prose. Ronan contemplates the nature of secrets, the people who keep them, and how they are kept. And we've talked about Maggie's novel First Lines before, but a secret is a strange thing. It is a perfect example. It reads as a thesis statement for the whole book. It really does. It really, really does. And not only that, but the first three paragraphs are just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And they set out pretty much everything that's going to happen in the book. Absolutely. And in the Opal short story episode, I talked about how Opal or Orphan Girl's original name was Secret. Uh Uh-huh. And I won't go into too much detail here, but I'll refer listeners to that episode if you haven't gotten to it already. And of course, that's only if you've read the short story. But we do talk about the (laughs) Mm. secret and how it relates to Opal. Right. And as you mentioned, the entire prologue feels like a fairy tale to me. Right. The structure and the rhythm. Mm -hmm. There are three types of secrets. And already we're getting into the threes because three is a very common theme with Ronan as we've seen before and also with fairy tales as we will discuss later. Right. Every day thousands of confessions are kept from their would-be confessors. None of these people knowing that their never admitted secrets all boil down to the same three words. I am afraid. So very true. Not only is it very Catholic but it's also very doesn't quite want to admit maybe his sexuality because Uh that is his second secret. Mm-hmm. How does Ronan hide his fear? And how much does that fear play into the dream thieves? Like just the book as a whole really is like him coming to grapple right. with his fear, his Catholicism, his secrets. This is again, it's the thesis for the book. Uh-huh. 
And then there's a line in here that reminds me of Gansey talking about Glendower. It may be a useless mystery, arcane and lonely, unfound because no one ever looked for it. Uh-huh. Which to me, it echoes that quote, Gansey owed the world to look. If uh-huh. you're good at finding things, you owed the world to look. Mm-hmm. All of us have secrets in our lives where keepers are kept from, players are played. Secrets and cockroaches, that's what will be left at the end of it all. So good. I- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hate to say it, but goosebumps. All right. (laughs) And then Ronan Lynch lived with every sort of secret. Mm -hmm. And he does. He's all about the secrets. Right. Which is interesting as someone who says he never lies. Uh Uh-huh. Now, we've talked about Ronan's hero worship just a little bit. But here it seems like he actually knows his father pretty well as a scoundrel. Niall Mm -hmm. Lynch was a braggart poet, a loser musician, a charming bit of hard luck bred in Belfast, but born in Cumbria. Mm -hmm. Yet... Ronan loved him like he loved nothing else. And how does this statement up front immediately influence how the reader views Niall Lynch? It's like we're seeing Niall through Ronan's eyes with this reality of, yeah, I know my dad's not the greatest person, but but I love him anyway. anyway. (laughs) Niall was a rogue and a fiend, and Niall's just laid bare immediately. Uh On page two, it says that Niall was gone for months at a time, and it's like, he's gone for months. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ronan questions whether this was because of his career or because of his being a scoundrel. Does this lend credence to the second family fan theory? I have not heard this theory. Uh, we did talk about it in the Opal. Oh, right. right. Because like that might be where Declan yeah. comes from? Well, no, not where Declan comes uh, from. The lady who shows up oh, yeah, at the house. Oh, yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. So... Without getting into too much, because we don't want to bring in too much from the Opal short story. Okay. And Niall's quote of, When I was born, God broke the mold so hard the ground shook. Niall's tall tales, at least this one, actually get a little vindication later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the earthquake is such a typical magical origin story. Uh-huh. And here's the history of that earthquake. Because, of course, you know that I looked this of up. Of course you did. <laughs> On August 9th, 1970, there was a 4.1 earthquake in Kirkby Stephen, which is where Ronan finds that article it was located. Mm-hmm. Kirkby Stephen is located on the east side of Cumbria, and it's near a town named Ravenstonedale. And I need <laughs> awesome. to go there immediately. Uh-huh. <laughs> Cumbria itself is a county in the northwest of England, and Belfast is just west across the Irish Sea Okay, from, from where Cumbria is. And then a few lines later, the prologue says, 20 years later, the boys were born. Mm-hmm. So estimating that the book is set in 2012, and that Declan is at least 18 years old during the Dream Thieves, and if Niall was born on August 9th, 1970, which would make him a Leo, <laughs> boo Leos, we're awful people. People. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just saying that because I made fun of Scorpios last time. <laughs> and I figured I'd make fun of my own sign as well. Um, Leos have got our own problems. But Niall would have been about 24 when Declan was born, mm-hmm. maybe 23, 24. And then Ronan immediately in the narration calls the earthquake story a lie, which I think is funny because then he despises Declan for being a liar. And Uh it's like, why is he willing to cut his dad this slack and call him a storyteller? 
versus a liar when he acknowledges in the prologue that it's a lie, Uh but it's not a lie. It's actually true. (laughs) I mean, it's, yeah, it's sort of a zigzag there. And then why is Declan not a storyteller or braggart poet? Right. And as Declan points out later, when he tries to tell Ronan the story about the hero and the spear, lies and stories are the same thing. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Yeah. And then it points out that there are three Lynch brothers and they each reflect a different aspect of their dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, that three. Right. Three brothers are often show up in fairy tales. Right. And I do love how the three brothers are described with Declan as the schmoozer, Matthew bright eyed and charming, and Ronan was everything that was left. Molten eyes and a smile made for war. Uh-huh. There was little to nothing of their mother in any of them. And I would argue that Matthew has a lot of Aurora in him, but that may be because he's a dream too. Right. Uh, Poor Aurora. Yeah. I agree that Matthew is very, very like Aurora. And I kind of wonder if that's something from the dreaming. I find it interesting that all three of the dream creatures in Ronan's life are blonde. Mm -hmm. We touch on that a little bit later as well in the fairy tale tropes. And then it says Ronan was not in the business of believing, which I find interesting given his Catholic background. I guess it's not about belief, but about faith. Uh I think he says that a little bit later. And it seems to be a big difference between Declan and Ronan. Mm -hmm. Ronan doesn't need to believe, but he does need to have faith. Declan needs to believe, but he doesn't have faith. Right. Niall always said Ronan differently than other words. Niall's favoring Ronan kind of goes against the trope because it's usually the youngest mm-hmm. of the three who's his favorite. But then again, Matthew's not really Niall's son. Right. But also, <laughs> Matthew's not a dreamer. Right. And true. so Niall's going to favor the one that's most like him. Uh-huh, that's and true. speaking as the eldest in a family of three siblings where the middle son was the favorite of our dad, this <laughs> makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> and all of the um, rage and betrayal <laughs> of Declan Lynch. Yeah, I, I, I feel <laughs> you bro i there was no middle child in our family just me and one younger sibling yeah. so and then niall calling ronan something or it meaning something other than his name it seems to reflect a repeated refrain of ronan being known or unknown and it's also interesting that his father would say his name like weapons knife poison revenge mm-hmm. And then Niall describing Ronan's birth is very apocalyptic. Rivers drying up, (laughs) cattle weeping blood. And it's like, why blood? You know, why when Niall wants Ronan to be the hero and not the spear, Uh yet he's putting him into the role of the spear. Mm -hmm. But Aurora's story is so charming. First, she says Ronan emerged, not was born, which I find really interesting. Mm -hmm. And that the trees grow flowers and the ravens laughed. And Mm -hmm. Aurora is like a literal fairy tale princess. And we'll probably get into her relation to the Sleeping Beauty legend in the future. Yeah. And Declan asks, like, what happened when I was born? And Niall's like, I wouldn't know. I wasn't here. And it's like, when Niall said Declan, it always sounded like he meant to say Declan. It's like, poor Declan. I have so much more sympathy for him in rereads. I just feel so bad for him. Yeah. (laughs) And my note here is, fuck you, Niall. (laughs) Which, you know... I'm going to say, it's been very hard to figure out what the drinking game will be for the Dream Thieves. But one thing I considered <laughs> was taking a drink every time I hate Niall Lynch. But then I might die of alcohol yeah, poisoning. Yeah, <laughs> so, so that might be one of the drinking games. We'll see. Yeah. 
Ronan finding the clipping about the earthquake when his father was born gives him proof that there's at least some truth behind his father's outlandish tales. Mm -hmm. And then immediately, like, it goes to the scene where he sees Niall pull something from a dream. I like that parallel. Oh, my dad's stories may be true. Like, here's proof of this story. And then goes to, like, oh, and here's when I saw what he could do. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I adore the line, the morning sun made them both snowy as angels, which was the better part of a lie already. (laughs) Yeah, neither one of them are angels. (laughs) Niall wakes up with his face smeared with blood and petals, which would lead me to believe that both Niall and Aurora's stories of Ronan being born are true. I can see that. Yeah. And then the petals snared in the blood are shaped like tiny blue stars. And I was going to look this up, but I didn't find a whole lot of interesting things. It just reminds me of what borage looks like. Mm -hmm. They're these tiny little blue star-shaped flowers that are an herb. I have them in my garden, but I was like, oh, there's no symbolic meaning that I could tie back, but they're very cool. Mm -hmm. They're great tea. They taste like cucumbers. Interesting. And then Niall immediately tells Ronan, don't tell anyone. And that was the first secret. And Ronan didn't tell anyone for a long, long time. Yeah. And even though it was like literally killing him. Yeah, and explain what you mean by literally killing him. Are you talking about the monsters? Or? Yeah, basically. Okay, yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. and like, plus the added stress isn't killing him quickly, but the monsters almost did. Right. <laughs> well, because it did literally kill Niall. Uh-huh. Because he was killed for access to the Grey Warren mm-hmm. and that secret. The second secret was perfect in his concealment. Ronan did not say it. Ronan did not think it. He never put lyrics to the second secret. The one he kept from himself, but it still played in the background. How was I surprised when he hooked up with Adam? Yeah, yeah. I saw a discussion about whether Ronan knew through this or Adam knew or all that. And we talked a little bit about it in the mailbag episode, Mm -hmm. whether we thought Adam knew. But here, it very specifically says the one he kept from himself. And it's even from Ronan's POV, he's not admitting it to himself. It seems like he's not willing to do that until the end of the Dream Thieves when he accepts who he is as a dreamer, that he doesn't want to die, all of this. So here it feels like he's denying his attraction, which really seems to be a pretty common narrative when realizing sexuality. Mm-hmm. And then we skip to Ronan dreaming about the keys of the pig. Gansey trusted him with all things except for weapons. And I'm guessing, you know, why? Is it because of the suicide? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I'd trust him with weapons. <laughs> I Yeah. <laughs> Heck, I don't know that I'd trust me with a weapon. (laughs) (laughs) And then it was a dream strength, only substantial enough to cling to the idea of opening the door. And then Ronan thinks the keys are in it. Lucid dreaming. It's not that Ronan doesn't have any control of his dreaming. It's just that later Kavinsky shows him the scale of his dreaming. Uh Uh-huh. And then just as a question, have you ever had a sensory dream or anything where when you woke up, there was some sensation afterwards? No, but I have had lucid dreams. Mm-hmm. Like I would have a recurring dream where I would be chased by something and then trip over a root. Mm-hmm. And like I had that dream one time and I was running. I was like, okay, the root is about to come up. Stop. Don't trip on the root. Right. And I didn't trip on the root and then I never had the dream again. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually did used to have dreams where I would actually wake up like I had gotten bitten and then I'd wake up and my arm hurt. Oh, man. Yeah, as like eight, nine, ten. But I also have so many dream issues that that was a minor one <laughs> compared to everything else. 
And when he opened his hand, the keys lay in his palm, dream to reality. This was his third secret. Yeah. Have you ever seen the wiki how article that Maggie wrote about dream thieving? I'm not. I really need to go and look yeah, at that. Yeah, it's so awesome. It's really, really cool. We don't want to go through all of it, but it's really neat. And I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. All right. Deep dive. Since deep dive. the prologue had so much fairy tale imagery and we touched on some of it there, we'll put the deep dive in here. And when we first started planning this deep dive, I said, oh, let's do fairy tale storytelling motifs that pop up in the Raven cycle. And then I was like, wait, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> and it is. And it is. So how about we narrow it down to Celtic mythology? And then I started researching and I realized I was going back to the original premise of tropes and fairy tales. But <laughs> Thankfully, Shannon put together some really good analysis of Celtic mythology. <laughs> well, I wouldn't call it really good. But anyway, I went less for fairy tales specifically and focused on Celtic mythology, like you said, mainly because I've been looking for my book of Irish and Scottish fairy tales, like specifically fairy tales, mm-hmm. for weeks now, and I just cannot find it. Right. It just disappeared. I think the fairies took it. <laughs> it's possible. They're like, you need this? Yoink. <laughs> they, they do that to me all the freaking time. Yeah. And nor can I remember the specific name, so I could get it from the library. (laughs) Anyway, I grabbed a couple of books on Celtic mythology from the local library because I knew there'd be a lot of stuff to look at there. So where I started was in all instances of breaking down folklore into motifs, you pretty much have to circle around to the Arn Thompson Uther Tale Type Index, which is, quote, a massive categorization system that, in the service of scholarship, has attempted to squeeze every Indo-European folktale and fable into a salient category, complete with the corresponding number and pithy name. (laughs) And that was a quote from an Atlas Obscura article titled, The ATU Fable Index, like the Dewey Decimal System, but with more ogres. Which I would argue is both funny and incorrect, as the Dewey Decimal System has all ogres in section 398.2, Folktales, Fairy Tales, Fables of the World. Oh my god. (laughs) You freaking looked up the Dewey Decimal Decimal for ogres. (laughs) Oh my god, let me <laughs> I swear we neither one of us has had a full glass of wine yet. What the heck is up with us? <laughs> What's up with us is that it's been like three months, right? <laughs> All right. In the early 20th century, the Finnish folklorist Antti Arn. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I think it's Arn. It might be Arne. I've heard it Arn. Began organizing all of the folktales present in Scandinavian collections into several thousand named and numbered categories. Then, in 1928, the American folklorist Stith Thompson revised and added to the Arn Index and translated it into English. Okay. The last major contributor was a modern folklorist in the early 2000s, Hans-Jörg Uther of Germany. Okay. And he and a team of international researchers consolidated some entries, rewrote summaries, and added over 250 new types and subtypes of folklore and fairy tales. Cool. So, 
another quote, the team also made a special effort to include tales from underrepresented groups and to correct for sexism. Interesting. It is still being refined and worked on to include more cultures and to remove some Indo-European biases. Things like sleeping princesses were put under Snow White, but not every sleeping princess has white skin. So they're renaming those and putting in more not European-centric folktales. However, it could take years of study to figure out how all of those tales fit together, and we have less than 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to that indispensable website of all media analysis, TV Tropes. TV Tropes! I took my category headings from their website, though the examples that I give are ones that I'm personally familiar with and seem to fit with the Raven Cycle. Mm -hmm. I will go through the fairy tale tropes. Shannon will give examples from Celtic mythology. One of the ones that fits with the Raven Cycle is Back from the Dead. Mm -hmm. And this is usually a character in fairy tales who specifically comes back to give advice. Like Persephone, she has post-death visits to Adam Mm -hmm. in his visions. It's often a mother figure or a protector. This is found in stories that use devices like the talking dead horse head that's nailed above the gate in (laughs) The Goose Girl. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I'm not. It's great. (laughs) I have to look that one up. Or the grim version of Cinderella, Aschenputtel? Yep. Yes. Where the girl's dead mother comes back as a magical dove after she plants a hazel tree over her mother's grave. And (laughs) there are a couple of other things where body parts of people or animals are planted and they become trees, Mm -hmm. either talking trees or magical fruit trees or all that. Mm -hmm. And then also see Obi-Wan in Star Wars, Uh (laughs) etc. And of course, Noah fits this as well. Absolutely. He's a little bit of a, no pun intended, spirit guide. He's a little... He absolutely is. Yeah, yeah, he's a little bit of that advice giver as well. Mm -hmm. Noah's story is almost like the one of the singing bone, where one brother slays another to take over his quest. The brother's bones become bleached and eventually are found by a shepherd who turns one of his bones into a flute. And then when the flute is played, it begins to tell the tale of his murder. Ah. Ah, friend, thou blowest upon my bone. (laughs) (laughs) Long have I lain beside the water. My brother slew me for the boar and took for his wife the king's young daughter. So also a quick point semi-related to this. There is actually a Saint Ronan Mm -hmm. who is said to have ridden a gigantic monster to an island to drive off its poisonous inhabitants into the sea so he could build a monastery there. Mm -hmm. And after the saint's death, there was a huge quarrel about what parish got to build his tomb. Okay. And so the compromise they reached was to let God decide. So they put his body on a cart, pulled by an ox, and they let the ox go where it will. And wherever the ox stops, that's where they're going to build the tomb. Mm -hmm. So they follow the ox until it finally stops in a small wood on top of a hill. The parishioners go home for the night, intending to come back and start construction the next day. Mm -hmm. But when they get back in the morning, a chapel has already been built. The cart has miraculously become a stone tomb, and the branches of the trees of the wood have become petrified, forming the intricate stone tracery of the chapel that enshrines the saint's body. Mm -hmm. And today, this is known as the Chapel of Loch Ronan in Finistre. 
That's awesome. I looked up some pictures, but I couldn't find any like specifically good ones to. Mm, yeah, to it looks really, right. really interesting. But maybe I'll find some good ones before we put stuff up. Right. And yeah, and another figure we talked about very briefly in the Scorpio races right. episode, and whom I will have to talk about only briefly again, but I really like her, mm. is Epona. She's a goddess connected with horses and motherhood, and she's seen as the patron of journeys, and so was also connected with the journey of the soul from life to the other world. And I see a little of Aurora in that. Mm-hmm. It's dreams and not death, but still like the spirit guide thing. And she was a psychopomp. Mm-hmm. And Opal as well. Right. And we do talk about the psychopomps and sort of what psychopomps are and what they mean and how they could tie into Opal and Aurora. Mm-hmm. Again, in that Opal short story episode. Right. We do. And to go back to something that we talked about or I talked about in the prologue, the trope hair of gold, heart of gold. Blonde characters are often portrayed as pure of heart. And for the Raven Cycle, like Aurora, Matthew, Persephone. Mm -hmm. Rapunzel, of course, has the ultimate in long blonde hair. And being trapped in a tower makes her very unworldly and innocent. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that we talk about a lot, and you have some great examples, the rule of three. Often three siblings of the same gender, the Mm -hmm. Lynch brothers. Three items that need to be stolen, like in Jack and the Beanstalk, he has to steal the bag of gold, the goose that lays the golden eggs, and the singing harp. Mm -hmm. Or three creatures, like three billy goats gruff, or three little pigs. Mm -hmm. For the Raven Cycle, you have the three Lynch brothers, which we talked about. And then the three Foxway ladies, which will get their own deep dive on the triple goddess. And then the three sleepers, etc. Right. And in many, many Celtic tales and European fairy tales in general, the number three is really paramount. It's really important, mm-hmm. like, we, like we just mentioned. Things happen in threes or multiples of threes. Mm-hmm. And this is partly because three is the smallest number possible to make a pattern and then subvert it. Right. There's something in script writing called the three beat. Right. Where exactly. you play it straight twice and then, and then the third have, one is that inversion, which right. we've also talked about in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. But it's also present in the way ancient Celts saw the world. And there's a triple goddess, which we mentioned briefly a few times and also physical divisions like sky earth and sea or religious divisions like heaven earth and other world or mortals deities and the dead mm-hmm. and anyone who has been listening knows that we look for threes in the raven cycle right and we find a whole lot of them right One of the other fairy tale tropes that comes up in the Raven Cycle is the Threshold Guardian. Mm -hmm. It's things like trolls, ogres, giants, riddle makers, etc. that keep the hero from the next step in their journey. It's seen in stories like the three billy goats crossing the troll guarded bridge. Mm. And it's spoofed in Monty Python's quest for the Holy Grail. (laughs) What is your quest? (laughs) What is your favorite To search the Holy Grail. (laughs) What is the airspeed velocity of a swallow carrying... A coconut. Hmm. Is it an African swallow or a European swallow? I don't know. (laughs) God, we're nerds. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Oh my gosh, where were we? In many stories, including the Raven Cycle, (laughs) the threshold guardian may give an impossible task, which is another folklore trope. 
example, mm-hmm. the Sphinx asking Oedipus a riddle before he could enter Thebes. Uh-huh. Jesse Ditley is a threshold guardian for yes. the cave where Gwenthian is buried. And Blue has to perform tasks in order to gain access. Absolutely. Jesse is also very representative of the giant mythological motif, uh-huh. made even more apparent when compared to Blue's diminutive frame. Yep. There are several Celtic, usually warrior goddesses associated with ravens and corvids. And the one who comes to mind for me, first off, is the Morrigan. Mm-hmm. She could transform into a raven and would often be found near battlefields, foretelling which soldiers would die. She's fierce and dark, and if Roman were a female character, he would be the Morrigan, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> Guess who my favorite goddess is? I wouldn't know, Navita. <laughs> Bave, Matcha, and Lamont. (laughs) And I will add a link to a grim fairy tale called The Raven because I started to go down the Raven pathway and I realized that if I went down that little road, I would not be coming back. So so we're going to leave that there. We never get done. Yeah. And another trope. We talked in our very first episode about the inversion of true love's kiss. It's mostly a Disney-fied trope, like Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Beauty and the Beast. It doesn't actually appear very often in the original folk tales, but the kiss of a true love is purported to break a curse of some kind. Of course, it's mirrored, ha, huh, and distorted, <laughs> with Blue's curse killing her true love. Mm-hmm. Shannon has some great examples of a couple of other tropes. The year outside, an hour inside, which is like Rip Van Winkle or Tom Thomas the Rhymer, Mm -hmm. and The Lost Wood, which is like in Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood, or Vasilisa the Beautiful, who meets the infamous Baba Yaga. I love Baba Yaga. I know. We all love Baba Yaga. (laughs) Gotta love Baba Yaga. If you don't, you're in trouble. (laughs) If you do, you're in more trouble. (laughs) So there are also, like we said, there are numerous parallels to be found between events in the Raven Cycle and general Celtic myths about fairy and the other world. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things that popped to mind is the way time works differently in Cave's Water and kind of the whole series, just in general. It's really common in stories about someone ending up in fairy for time to either move really quickly or really slowly there or for seasons to work differently. Mm-hmm. And another thing I noticed has to do with the borders between the real world and other world. In Celtic mythology, things like fairy mounds, which are ancient burial mounds, mm-hmm. and lakes and wells act as doorways between the worlds and boundaries like rivers divide the worlds. Mm-hmm. And in the Raven Cycle, you've got the lakes and the caves that are entrances to literal other worlds. Right. And then there's the brook that marks the boundary of caves water when the first time they go there Mm -hmm. and another concept that can often be found in celtic myth is the idea of holy trees Mm -hmm. oaks were especially revered but you know holly and mistletoe were important as were ash and birch and elm Rituals were often performed in sacred groves. Celtic knotwork is meant to evoke vines and greenery. Mm-hmm. And this all reminds me of cave water and the Tiralinthe. Right. And I'd love to, at some point in The Raven King, mm-hmm. do one about tree spirits. Yes. Because they are found all over the world. And to do kind of a deep dive on some of the mythology specific to tree spirits. Yeah, that would be fun. These are a couple of tropes that just have to do with family that I thought were appropriate for the Raven Cycle. The honorary aunt or uncle. It's often a parental type figure that is not related to the hero, but protects them and has their best interest at heart. 
It's been translated into the Good Fairy Godmothers, like in Cinderella. Mm -hmm. Those would be examples of this, but there are many, 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 many others. Mm -hmm. I'd say that Kala and Persephone fit this role, and in Blue, Lily, Lily, Blue, even the Gray Man could be considered to take this one on. Yeah, I think so. And then one of my favorites is the Wished for Child or the Wonder Child. Mm -hmm. It's sort of inverted with Matthew, but I think that it applies to him. It's inverted because it was Ronan that wished for a baby brother. Right. And it's used in fairy tales like Thumbelina, where the mother plants a seed and Thumbelina is born. Uh She's very small. Or the Snow Maiden, which is one of my personal favorites, where a childless couple makes a girl snow doll and she comes to life but melts away when the spring thaw comes. Mm. And as a closing note, if anyone is interested in Welsh mythology specifically, a good place to look for that is a collection of stories called the Mabinogian. I think I'm saying Yeah, I think it's Mabinogian. And I've actually found this as an audiobook on Audible, and I it's very long when to mm. go through all of them, but I've slowly been picking away at stuff because it mm. actually does have a lot of things that relate directly to the Raven cycle. Right. Because like Gwendower was Welsh, so of course like right. that's the kind of Right. Yeah. It's a collection of Bardic sources that were translated and compiled in the nineteenth century by folklorist Lady Charlotte Guest. And Mabinogian has a setting that includes real and recognizable places around the area, alongside elements of magic, transformation, death, and resurrection. And mm-hmm. I'm like, does that sound familiar? Right. <laughs> also, lots of giants. Uh-huh. <laughs> there are a lot of giants. Yes, there are a lot of giants. These stories took their current form in the Middle Ages, but they have ancient Celtic themes alongside Christian elements. And many Celtic gods and goddesses became Celtic saints, like Brigid right. is the one that mm-hmm. pops to mind. Yeah, because... They- they did that on purpose. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like, the, because, the Catholic yeah, Church to, to, did that on purpose. Mm, absolutely. And then some of the characters from the Mabinogian became Knights of the Round Table, mm-hmm. notably Gawain, mm-hmm. and also maybe Merlin. And if you want to actually hear some of these stories, there's a musician called Dom the Bard, who I've mentioned before, who has an album of some of these stories being told along with accompanying songs. And I listed it in the show notes mm-hmm. because I think that's pretty awesome, just because, like, to carry on the Bardic tradition. And, right. Yeah. Chapter one is a blue POV chapter, and Blue wonders to herself whether or not fate has caught up with her yet, as she and her raven boys fly one of Renan's dream creations over the hills of far away. Adam, as usual, seems dubious. Ronan, as usual, seems confrontational. Noah, as usual, seems awestruck, and Gansey, as usual, seems exuberant. Mm-hmm. This chapter serves as an overall recap of the Raven Boys and the relationships between each of the characters. Uh, Theoretically, Blue Sergeant was probably going to kill one of these boys. And I find this quote disproportionately funny. (laughs) I don't know that it's disproportionate (laughs) to the funniness of that quote. It's probably pretty proportionate. (laughs) Like It's like the quote, (laughs) the one where... All along, Blue has been afraid she would kill Gansey, and it turns out she's going to strangle him. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like, you know, that's a paraphrase. I don't have it right in front of me. So, But I know the quote you're talking about. Right. So your quote, theoretically, Blue Sergeant is probably going to kill one of these boys. Mm -hmm. And then the POV immediately cuts to Gansey. Right. (laughs) Really subtle, Blue. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, she's already decided. Let's, (laughs) Let's be honest. At the moment, that particular boy, Rachel Campbell Gansey the Third, looked pretty unlikable. Looked pretty unkillable. <laughs> oh, pretty, oh no! 
Yes, leaving it in. <laughs> I'm just thinking, <laughs> I can't believe I misread that. <laughs> Gazy is in his element right now. Mm-hmm. The description, an ardently yellow polo shirt flapped against his chest, (laughs) and a pair of khaki shorts slapped his gloriously tanned legs. Ardent, (laughs) glorious, again, real subtle blue. (laughs) Boys like him didn't die, they were bronze and installed outside public libraries. Presidential libraries? Eh? Eh? (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) Am I in love with him yet? And I'm like, if you're asking that way, yeah, you are. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yet? Get it together, girl. (laughs) She thinks about how she had the vision of kissing Gansey. It had more to do with Richard Campbell Gansey III having a nice mouth than any blossoming romance. Sure, whatevs. Eye roll. Anyway, if fate thought it could tell her who to fall for, fate had another thing coming. Or you do, Blue. Yeah, we're, we're like totally dragging Blue. Uh, I'm no, like, I love Blue. Uh, love no, I know, I know. I'm dragging her. No, I know. I'm, I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gansey, don't feminists have big muscles? Is he flirting? Is this Gansey flirting? No wonder he's only dating a dead Welsh king at the moment. (laughs) And Blue thinks decidedly not in love with him. Mm Mm-hmm. You keep telling yourself that, honey child. (laughs) And then we get a paragraph setting up the whole quest, in case you had forgotten between books. (laughs) Thank you, exposition monkey. You're welcome. Yeah. Blue wants to use Gwyndower's favor to save Gansey. It seemed to her that he was the only one who really needed it. And doesn't Adam say that's what he'll wish for too once he knows about that Gansey's going to die? Mm Mm-hmm. And do we find out what Ronan wants? And do we know what Gansey would actually ask for? No, not really. Ronan wants to go home. That's all he's ever wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think Gansey just wants to find the root of the mystery of his rebirth, basically. Not that Gansey knew he was supposed to be dead in a few months and not that she was about to tell him he knows and she's right. not, and he's not talking either because they're all such secret keepers despite the agreement not to be right another thing i contemplated for the drinking game was any time someone is keeping an obvious secret from another person Take a drink. Take two. Again, we'd be (laughs) dead at alcohol poisoning. (laughs) Blue's description of Adam's looks really does put me in mind of a common look of a bunch of guys from back home. Mm. There's a specific look. Mm. Finally, two pages in, Blue thinks about the guy she's ostensibly dating. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Adam Parrish, gaunt and fair, Noah Cherney, smudgy and slouching, and Ronan Lynch, ferocious and dark. It is a perfect encapsulation of those characters. It really is. And then my girl Chainsaw. (laughs) Although her grip was careful, there were finely drawn lines from her claws on either side of the strap of his black muscle tee. Gansey cavalierly tossed the telescope into the field grass, made me think, telescopes cost money, Gansey. Treat your scientific (laughs) equipment correctly, please. Adam looks more delicate, a little alien, a little impenetrable. Is this from the bargain with caves water or Mm -hmm. from exhaustion and stress or all of the above? All of the above, probably. Mm -hmm. Adam Parrish, unknowable. Mm -hmm. I'm picking this one, Fate, she thought ferociously. Not Richard Campbell Gansey III. You can't tell me what to do. (laughs) Yep, sure. (laughs) Says Fate, watch me. (laughs) 
Adam's hand glided over her elbow. The touch was a whisper in a language she didn't know very well. They're both touch-starved. They all are, really. Mm -hmm. Like, the whole crew. Yeah, contrasts with Blue's description of Gansey and his interaction with her, which Mm -hmm. is very light and sort of back and forth. Mm -hmm. Describing the plane, it is ludicrously lacking in detail. A plane-shaped thing. Like Noah is a boy-shaped thing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's impossible then, Adam said. Yes, it is. But you've already experienced the impossible. And here, a timeline is given that the ritual bargain was done one month before. Mm -hmm. And again, Gansey and Adam are contrasted. Gansey is excited, a bit naive and credulous, but Adam, who had only gotten this far in life by questioning every truth presented to him, had wanted proof. See our previous conversations in episode 13 about Adam's trust issues quite possibly being a result of his abuse. Mm-hmm. And Ronan mocks Adam's accent, his vocal inflections. And later, <laughs> Ronan does this to Henry, which some fans have rightly called out as potentially racist. Mm-hmm. Blue hands Ronan some seeds to put into the plane, and Ronan calls her maggot. She balks at Gansey calling her Jane, but doesn't even react to Maggot. (laughs) Also, Maggot seems awfully close to Maggie. I wonder if that was ever a nickname she was called. (laughs) Blue reflects on the fifth button on the control for the plane. That fifth button was like Adam, still working toward the same purpose as the other four, but no longer quite as close as the others. And I'm thinking, is that Adam's fault or everyone else's? Or is it like a combination of everybody's fault? I think, yeah, it's just Mm -hmm. a result of what's happened. And Adam's taken a lot on. It's such an amazing metaphor. Mm -hmm. Something in Blue's chest thrummed with excitement. Is Blue amplifying possibly the dream energy? Probably. You incredible creature, Gansey said, and we find out later that this sticks in Ronan's head. It does. It does paint Ronan as inhuman or it really unhuman, does, yeah. though. And Adam tipped his head back to watch, something still and far away around his eyes. And I wonder what he's seeing, if yeah. anything. The description of Ronan here as frighteningly alive and savage and pleased is such a good description of what dreaming is to and does for Ronan. Mm-hmm. It suddenly didn't seem at all surprising that he should be able to pull things from his dreams. It is the core of who he is. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very essential to him. Yeah, and I'd like to put a pin in that because I do feel like this paragraph or this description does feed into the later paragraph where he's trying to get everyone to race Kavinsky. Mm Mm-hmm. In that moment, Blue was a little in love with all of them. Their magic, their quest, their awfulness, and their strangeness. Her raven voice. I kind of love it when Blue waxes poetic about the boys. Yeah. (laughs) And this is one of the classic quotes of the books. Uh Gansey tries to bring in the legend of Glendower by comparing Ronin to the magicians or wizards and Blue with telling the future. Uh It's interesting that he doesn't point out anything regarding Adam, but perhaps nothing has really manifested with Adam yet. Uh It's funny that like, you know, Adam is, uh, Adam is actually the magician. Right, right. (laughs) 
Ronan's gaze still directed up to his plane and to Chainsaw, a white bird and a black bird against the azure ceiling of the world. Mm-hmm. Ronan wanting to fly, wanting mm-hmm. to be free. And the wind rushes over the grass, bringing with it the scent of moving water and rocks hidden in shadows, the scent of caves. Yes. Blue thrilled again and again with the knowledge that magic was real. Magic was real. Magic was real. It's another instance of three. Mm-hmm. And also, I love this quote. Though I always have to, like, add, but but your whole family is psychic? Right. <laughs> I think there's it's a, a different, different kind yeah, of magic. There's a different type of, I grew up with this magic, and therefore it is ordinary to me. Mm-hmm. And this is magic that I've never seen before. My something, my mm-hmm. something more. Right. Chapter two. It's a gray man POV. Woo-hoo. Our first. The gray man has a conversation with Declan Lynch. <laughs> my first note was, Declan! That's my boy! Uh-huh. Declan, described as never alone, never with his brothers, but never alone, is so sad to me. Mm-hmm. His extrovertedness is trying to make up for a disconnected home life, maybe? Just like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. It's also very much the extrovertedness of Niall. Mm-hmm. There are a few fan interpretations of the people that Declan is interacting with. Uh-huh. An alcove with a girl's palm to his mouth. Mm-hmm. That girl could very well be Ashley. Right. I mean, people say that that he's cheating on Ashley, but it could be Ashley. It's not like the gray man would know the difference. Mm-hmm. And fans also like to make a big deal out of the laughing over the hood of an older man's Mercedes, like Declan is some sort of <laughs> gigolo <laughs> picking up on older men. Uh, of course, he's also like, he's running a business. Well, not only is he running a business, but he's also a politician. Yes. I mean, he is exactly. probably, he has an internship. He's probably making contacts, etc., etc. He's just an extrovert. I don't know if gigolo is a bad word. He's <laughs> sex worker, maybe. <laughs> it was impossible to tell whether he was the magnet or the filings attracted. Does he want, need, or like people? Or do they want, need, and like him? Or both? I think he actually genuinely is probably an extrovert Uh and probably genuinely has those behaviors. But, you know, how much of it is put on and how much of it isn't like Gansey's an introvert that's extroverted. Uh He puts on that behavior, but actually he's kind of an introvert. I think I think so, too. Declan is probably an extrovert. Mm hmm. So it's probably both, and it really seems like Niall also needed an audience to his life. Right. It was giving the gray man a not inconsiderable difficulty in finding an opportunity to speak with him. And I'm like, this is probably by design because Declan is not stupid. Agreed. I think that Declan is probably surrounding himself with people as a buffer for terrible things. Absolutely, because he knows that he's the target. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here we have another introductory paragraph, this one about Aglenby. The campus possessed a shabby gravitas that was only possible with age and affluence. The dorms are emptier, but not empty. The sons of CEOs, sons of touring punk musicians with heavier things to bring along than 17-year-old accidental progeny, and the sons of men who are dead and never coming to retrieve them. Like, fuck, that's harsh. Yeah, especially does since, not mess around. No, especially since you're the one who made that happen. Uh-huh. 
Also, it echoes Blue's description of Aglin B when she's talking to Neve at the beginning of The Raven Boys in Chapter 1. Absolutely. The fact that the gray man has an admitted enormous fondness for the Technicolor 70s cracks me up every time. (laughs) Did you see that amazing post about the anthropomorphic pig? I did not. I should totally look at it. Okay, I'll try to repost it, and then we'll probably talk about it more in a few episodes. (laughs) All right. All right, so how did you feel about the gray man when he was first introduced? I did not like him. Really? It was kind of like, he was an interesting character, Mm -hmm. but I really felt like we were supposed to be like, all right, this is the bad guy. Right. I actually loved him, but then again, you know, because of his sense of humor, Uh because of his quirks, because of things like the champagne monstrosity. Yeah. And saying that he hated public transportation above all else. I mean, (laughs) like, just the fact that he was a fully fleshed out character made me love him even straight off the bat. Mm -hmm. Like with that, you know, above comment about the 70s. And given that comment, how old do you think he is? Hmm. Seems like he would be in maybe his teens in the 70s. Yeah, I always pictured him in his mid-40s, which would put him, like, in his pre-teens in the 70s. Mm. Yeah, so I'm like, how could you possibly love the 70s that much? Because otherwise, he'd have to be in his 50s, and I don't think he'd be in his 50s. I really love the 80s, but I was... 10 and below in the 80s. Right, right. Yeah. I don't love the 70s. I don't love the 80s. I don't love the 90s. There's like (laughs) no part of me that loves those eras. But um. (laughs) okay, I love the music of the 80s. Yeah. There is a tiny line here. Those summer suns, few as they were, were not entirely noiseless. It's really only a week or two after graduation at most, and maybe only a few days, really, but most students would likely have left for home already. And a friend of mine asked why Declan would still be in the dorms if he had graduated the past year, but it's not like he's going to have anywhere else to go. Uh-huh. And... Uh, You know, he's going to be going away to college, and maybe the school is just allowing him to stay with Matthew for the summer. Right. And the gray man notices the propped open door and thinks to himself that, like, it really shouldn't be propped open. Mm -hmm. And it was not that, you know, a lock would have stopped him, but it was the thought that counted. Mm -hmm. And actually, the gray man wasn't sure he believed that. It was the deed that counted. And I agree with him. Intention isn't magic, as I like to say. Yeah, which is slightly ironic, given that later the gray man is basically forgiven with the quote, the sword is not the killer, it is the tool in the killer's hand, which leads one to think that his deed did not count in this case. Hmm. Music in the hall is described as seductive and violent. That phrase reminds me of Ronan, Kavinsky, and the gray man all at once. Yeah, basically. Each door bore an attribute the administration hoped its students would walk away with. This door was labeled mercy. It was not the door the gray man was looking for. I love these appropriate on many level quotes. Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> love that as well. Mercy is not what he's looking for. Uh-huh. Declan Lynch's door was effervescence, which means bubbly or vivacity and enthusiasm. And that actually sounds more like Matthew to me in a lot of ways. Yeah. There is an amazing post by Lynch Brothers on Tumblr that is one of my favorite things ever. So I'll try to repost that as well because it's a visual post and I, I cannot describe it but i'll try to repost it and put links in the show notes <laughs> and then even teeth seem to be a prerequisite for effervescence does that mean that adam is effervescent 
<laughs> Thanks for the straight teeth then. <laughs> and I think that's blue lily, lily blue. Mm-hmm. And then the gray man tries Declan's door and says, locked, good boy. He thought, it's the act that matters. Yeah, this strikes me as bizarrely paternal, given what the gray man is there to do. Yeah. So the gray man kicks in Declan's effervescent door and Declan is sitting on his bed very calmly, seemingly unsurprised as he says, what's this? (laughs) The gray man instantly attacks him with physical force. Mm -hmm. But the gray man had known before that Niall Lynch had taught his sons to box. And fuck, it hurts that he knows that much about Niall Lynch and what his sons are like. The only thing the gray man's father had taught him was how to pronounce trebuchet. I'm like, it's a funny quote and it's funnier to me because the audiobook pronounces it. Yeah. And I think it was the wrong way. I've heard it pronounced both ways. I've heard trebuchet and trebuchet. Even I looked it up online. How do you pronounce this words? They they uh, had it both ways. So uh, also, it seems like the gray man had horrible father number 563 in the Graven Cycle. Yep. <laughs> the thump of his head against a drawer was indistinguishable from the base down the hall. Oh, God. Poor Declan. I, I wanted to quickly note that there is a motorcycle helmet in Declan's room. Does Declan ride a motorcycle? Will he ride one in the Dreamer trilogy? No, let's be real. He probably rides a Vespa. <laughs> Declan pulls a gun from the drawer and points it at the gray man. And I love that this actually surprises the gray man. I also love that Declan gives a simple stop and the gray man does. Yeah, the gray man had not expected this. The tension is so good. Uh huh. The gun was not for the possibility of an attack, but for the inevitability of one. Oh, man. Uh huh. <laughs> The gray man thinks living like that would be unpleasant. I think the gray man gets Declan better than any other character right now, really. I'm like, poor kid. Yeah, because Declan is the only one who knows that someone is out for Ronan. He has to live with that secret. Mm. Yet another one that was dumped on the sons of Niall Lynch by their father. Yep. Take a drink. Take two. (laughs) Hating Niall Lynch drinking. (laughs) Where is the gray warren? Declan says nothing. This kid is tough as nails. Mm-hmm. It's like someone breaks into my house and threatens me and beats me up. I'm probably going to spill. <laughs> I wish I could say otherwise, but I think I'd talk. Yeah. This whole standoff is written so brutally and so beautifully. It almost makes me sick to my stomach to think of this happening to an 18-year-old boy. Or really anyone, but poor Declan, to Mm. know that this was going to happen someday. Right. I don't know where it is. I just know it is. Is this the truth? He knows Ronan can take stuff from his dreams, but does he know the name for it? Like, I mean, I guess it is technically the truth as he doesn't know where Ronan is. Right. It is the truth. Whether he knows Ronan as the name the Grey Warren, I'm not sure, but I'm sure he knows that the Grey Warren was what his father was killed for. Right. And that's what Ronan is. Mm. It's a bit funny that the gray man also calls Declan a liar, even though he really isn't lying right now. Right. I don't think you understand. I am your shadow. I'm the spit you swallow and the cough that keeps you up at night. That's a freaking great line. Yeah. Did you kill my father? The gray man thinks to himself that Niall Lynch was a pretty lousy father. True that. Yeah, getting himself killed. As if the gray man didn't uh-huh. have anything to do with it. <laughs> the world, he felt, was full of bad fathers. Well, as previously (laughs) stated, the Raven Cycle certainly is. 100%. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He asked me the same thing. 
I want this line explored in the Dreamer trilogy. Like, how far back does the Dreamer lineage go? Do Grey Warrens often meet a violent death? Mm-hmm. I talk in episode zero about how this line is my single favorite dangling plot thread in the entire series. I would absolutely love to know more about the Dreamers and the history of the Lynches. I think we'll get that in spades. Yeah. Declan says he'll find the Grey Warren and then immediately calls Matthew and then Ronan as soon as he's alone. He just got beaten up and he's still looking out for his brothers. Yeah. And then there's the pre-chapter break dramatic irony line. The Grey Man is watching Declan through a crack in the door as he calls Matthew and Ronan. And the last line of the chapter is, Declan Lynch closed his eyes and breathed, Ronan, where the hell are you? Where is the Grey Warren? Mm-hmm. All right, on to chapter three, which is a Ronin point of view chapter. Kavinsky tries desperately to get the Gangzi to race him. Ronin tries desperately to get Gangzi to accept. Yep. <laughs> I guess I'll keep harping on this, but the setups in these first few chapters are really interesting. We get right into the ley line in Glendower. Mm-hmm. If Glendower really could be found just by walking the ley line, I don't see how he wouldn't have already been found in the past few hundred years. Point, Gansey. Yeah. And Ronan is being a little pissy because he's not getting to drive the pig. Uh-huh. Gansey drove because when it was the Camaro, he always drove. <laughs> uh-huh. Ronan's leather bands tasted like gasoline, a flavor that struck Ronan as both sexy and summery. I love the smell of gasoline, and I agree with Ronan's assessment, but petroleum products smell way better than they taste. I am not a fan of the smell of gasoline. You're not? No. You either love it or you hate it. Yeah, I'm on the hate it side. Mm -hmm. I do really like the fact that sexy and summery and gasoline are all things that Ronan would probably also use to describe Kavinsky and Adam. Right. Kansi needed to find Glendower because he wanted proof of the impossible. Ronan already knew the impossible existed. His father had been impossible. He was impossible. Mm-hmm. And he himself is no longer a secret. Right. Ronan thinks about finding Glendower. He thought it might be a lot like dying. When Ronan had been smaller and more forgiving of miracles, he'd considered the moment of death with rhapsodic delight. This is an interesting take on Ronan's reflections on suicide. And when did he begin to fear death rather than welcome it? Mm -hmm. His mother had told him, when you looked into the eyes of God at the pearly gates, all the questions you ever had were answered. And Vernon had a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Waking Glendower might be like that. Fear angels attending and maybe a heavier Welsh accent and slightly less judgment. Lol. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) And as you know, I love Ronan's POV. His Mr. Gansey professorial voice, the one that exuded certainty and commanded rats and small children to get up, get up, and follow me. It had worked on Ronan, anyway. (laughs) It's the president's cell phone thing from Ronan's point of view. Right. And I really, really like the reference to the Pied Piper of Hamlin Uh with the rats and the small children. Because it does allude to Gansey's vocal command powers even here. Yes. And then Blue looks at Adam to translate GPR to ground penalty 
penetrating radar. And he does so without even knowing that she looked at him. Uh-huh. And so how does he know that she's hoping he will respond to her? It's like a little bit of potential Adam psychicness. Right. Vernon hadn't met Mallory in person and didn't care to. Oh, come on, dude. You know Gazy's going to be just like him when he's old. Hell, Gazy's just like him now. Yeah. The <laughs> elderly made Ronan anxious. Me too, buddy. Me too. <laughs> and yeah, you're hanging out with Gansey. <laughs> yeah. No, come on. Yeah, Gansey is throwing around quite a few terms here. Like flux great gradiometry is one that I was tempted to look up and then I did. <laughs> So, flux great gradiometry. <laughs> Magnetic gradiometry is a commonly used, semi-detailed, and detailed geophysical technique, allowing rapid mapping of magnetized archaeological objects, structures, and features contained within the subsoil. The objects, structures, or features largely become magnetized by the Earth's magnetic field due to them having an appreciable magnetic susceptibility, which provides a contrast with the normally low magnetic susceptibility of the host soils and sediments. Well done. <laughs> Ronan is restless. He felt like burning something to the ground. He cannot deal with emotions that are not active and complete, i.e. destroying something. Uh This happens throughout this book until the end when he finally accepts himself. Mm -hmm. And he says to Gansey, you're driving like an old woman. Does this... (laughs) Does this count as Gansey is an old person? Is this too many times to drink this episode? Never too many times. Take a drink. (laughs) If I was driving, Ronan thought about the set of Chimera keys he had jumped into existence, shoved in a drawer in his room. Ronan looks at his phone and he has 14 missed calls. Oh, man. Poor Declan. This is a ridiculous number of times to call your brother, Uh for sure. And this is from someone who is the worst about getting back to people. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, if my mom called me or my brother called me, like, once or twice, I'd be like, I should probably, like, call them back. The thing that had stopped their exploration that day was a man-made lake. I'm still not sure that I understand the point of the lake or the fact that it's man-made. It is the place where they find the shield bus and the Camaro hubcap, But I genuinely feel like those could have been found anywhere. Yeah. I I just don't, I don't get the plot point of the man-made lake. Mm -hmm. As if a crusty old man 3,000 miles away would have any bright ideas. (laughs) The oldest. Yeah. (laughs) Even Ronan, who had little care for whether or not he shuffled off this mortal coil, had to admit that being trampled by beasts or getting stuck in a 40-year time loop was daunting. Yeah, it's a little difficult to see Ronan's internal POV, where he's thinking about death in such a cavalier manner. Mm. Also, shout out to Hamlet reference. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The entire thing was Adam's fault. As Sinner himself, Ronan wasn't as struck by the transgression as Gansey's insistence that they continue to pretend that Adam was a saint. Why does everyone feel so betrayed by Adam? Yeah, I don't know that Ronan feels betrayed by Adam, but he does seem to feel like Adam is getting preferential treatment from Gansey. Mm. And this may play a little bit into Ronan's internal hissy fit in the Dollar City later. Ah, Gansey gets a text from his mom. Is that about Congress? She can't make me. Lol. Yes, she can, dude. Stop whining. (laughs) Ronan not wanting to answer his own phone, of course he refuses to answer Gansey's. <laughs> Ronan despised phones above almost every other object in the world. And I do so love the line, so it sat there with its eyebrows raised, waiting. <laughs> 
I also love the exchange after that. <laughs> like, she doesn't have to, mama's boy. Dream me a solution. Don't need to. Nature already gave you a spine. You know what I say, fuck Washington. This is why you never have to go to things like this. <laughs> how did I get to... How did I get you started to, it? <laughs> Old marrieds. The exchange between Gansey and Ronan are always the best. Uh-huh. And then Gansey's, oh Christ, is that Kavinsky? <laughs> like a perfect reaction. Yeah. So this is the first time we actually see Kavinsky on page. Uh-huh. A car pulled up beside the Camaro. Ronan, a connoisseur of street battles, noticed it first. Of course, Ronan is the one who recognizes it first. Uh-huh. He's seen Kavinsky on the road a lot. And then a hand stretched out the driver's side window, a middle finger extended over the roof. If this <laughs> isn't an iconic character introduction, I don't know uh-huh. what it is. <laughs> And I know Shannon isn't so much a car person, but I I do think that even you have to appreciate the fact that Maggie owns a Mitsubishi Evo with a license plate thief that at one point used to have a giant spattered knife graphic on the side. Wow, that's awesome. (laughs) And she even, of course, videoed herself spray painting said knife on the side of her car and posted it to YouTube. (laughs) Yeah. And then Ronan thinks, Joseph Kavinsky, fellow Aglenby Academy student and Henrietta's most notorious recreational forger. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, Kavinsky's abilities are foreshadowed on the page. Yeah. And we'll get into Kavinsky a lot. But I think one of the most important things to realize about Kavinsky from the very beginning, and we'll talk about it down the road, is that he's the only antagonist in the entire series that does not have a POV. Huh, okay. And because of that, everything that we know about him is not only run through the unreliable narrator of the characters, Mm -hmm. but also what we know is based on rumors that Kavinsky himself has likely started. Right. So we, the readers, are filtering the truth of Kavinsky through even more layers of perception than any other character in the series. Right. And a lot of Kavinsky's character and background has to be garnered through context clues seen only through the eyes of people who already hate him. Uh I just think that's important to get Right. Right out. And so, for example, rumor had it Kavinsky's father had bought off Henrietta's sheriff. But why would Kavinsky's father ever do such a thing if, as we find out later, he actually tried to kill Kavinsky? Uh-huh. And there's even some doubt that his father is still alive. Mm-hmm. I hate that prick, Adam said. Ronan knew he should hate him too. Right. I feel like Ronan knows that he has a fascination with Kavinsky. Uh-huh. There was nothing about Kavinsky that wasn't despicable. Ronan's heart surged. Muscle memory. <laughs> Boy, you need to check yourself. <laughs> he is equating adrenaline with the act of racing and not with Kavinsky himself. Uh-huh. He's misinterpreting what could be his attraction. Uh-huh. And then Ronan notices Proko. The latter had always been friendly with Kavinsky in the sort of way that an electron was friendly with a nucleus. But lately, he had seemed to have acquired official crony status. It's like, jealous? (laughs) Envious? How recently did this change happen? And the mystery is never solved. What happened to the original Prokopenko? Yeah, that's a good question. 
Ronan is fighting so hard to get everyone to agree to race Kavinsky. You can taste his need to do it. But it's such a horrible idea. Yeah. And Adam being all logical about the probability of them winning the race based on passenger weight and air conditioner and horsepower just Uh absolutely cracks me up. (laughs) I can imagine Adam talking about cars getting Ronan even more wound up. Uh (laughs) In that car, counted Ronan, in my BMW, he's a shitty driver. (laughs) On Tumblr, user 6appleseeds asked, Car question. Kavinsky routinely messes up the shifting from third gear to fourth, yes? As someone who drives stick, I don't see how he does this. Is this a thing that would be obvious if I raced regularly? Note, I'm not looking to street race more effectively. Merely understand a particular ineptitude of this most despicable character. And Maggie replied, I invite you to ride with me in my Mitsubishi Evo, which is fiddly from third to fourth, probably because Mitsubishi didn't love it enough at the factory. (laughs) It requires finesse, which our man Kavinsky doesn't seem to have, probably because the other Kavinskys didn't love him enough at the factory. (laughs) That sums up Kavinsky. Uh And then Blue says, him? He's not a dirtbag. He's an asshole. Mm Mm-hmm. The car gets quiet as they try to figure out how Blues knows Kavinsky. She works at Nino's, fellas. Everybody goes there. Right. Better question is, if she knows him, how didn't she know you? Of course, I suppose they weren't usually Dickster. Right. <laughs> Episode four, no object permanence strikes again. Yep. However, it is said in Blues POV in chapter six that Kavinsky was infamous even at her school. Right. Page 49. And mm-hmm. in the scene between the lady at the drug drugstore and the gray man, it's been indicated that Kavinsky is a pretty well-known troublemaker throughout Henrietta, which is page 53. And then Ronan is left without an outlet for all of that furious joy that Blue noted during chapter one, that place that I wanted to put a pin in. Ronan thinks Kavinsky is judging them all cowards and Ronan can't handle that. Uh Ronan's hands felt itchy. Then Ronan slumped in his seat, all the fight sucked out of him. He is defeated Defeated, the race that wasn't not able to provide an outlet for his restlessness. Uh-huh. And then Kavinsky's disappearance along the freeway ahead of them is described with dream imagery. Heat rippled off the interstate, making a mirage of the memory of Kavinsky like he'd never been. <laughs> you never want to have any fun, old man. Take a drink. <laughs> that's not fun. That's trouble. Yep, that's trouble. All right. Well, I think that's it. That is it. So, with the first episode of Dream Thieves, woohoo! We did it! Shannon's doing the cabbage patch, cabbage patch. Uh, <laughs> so, most valuable character. Do you want me to go first, or do you want to go first? I'll go first. Okay. If you think I'm going to pick anyone other than my man, Declan, (laughs) you are so wrong. (laughs) That's a very good one. I had trouble choosing between Declan and the gray man. Ah, should we do a Declan gray man fight? (laughs) Or should we choose Declan? Who did you eventually go with? The gray man. You did? Okay. I did. But... We can do you let want, Declan have it. Do you want to concede or do you want a Rochambeau? I'll concede. Okay. Seeing as how Declan was my... Was Runner my, up? Yeah. All right. Yeah, Declan, because come on, like he basically has the weight of these first couple of chapters yes. on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And 
he handles it with finesse. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, he handles it better than I ever would, which, as you pointed out, you'd probably crack. Uh-huh. I'm not sure that that's a good thing for poor Declan. It's kind of a painful thing to have to see. But yeah, I, I, I'm i going to give it. I, Declan. Do it. Yeah. All right. Declan. Yay, Declan. Yay. All right. So, Maggie Watch. Maggie is spending some time in England and Scotland at the moment. And she mentioned visiting the Roman baths in Bath. And that was one of her location inspirations for the Scorpio races, which would possibly lend some weight to the tease of a Scorpio races sequel. That would be so cool. It would be really interesting. I'm not sure where that would go, but of course, I'm not the author, so I don't need to know where that would go. But it is really interesting. So, and then our supporter shout out. I would just like to give a huge thank you to a friendly neighborhood Hufflepuff on Tumblr (laughs) for saying that your love has been devoted to Raven Girls and that we're your favorite podcast and one of your favorite things. And I just want to say thank you for reposting and telling folks about us. And also Lunar Library on Tumblr for being a consistent supporter and passing along our audio posts in particular, Mm -hmm. because that's huge for us. And we only get seen by new folks when those posts are reblogged. So it's really, really important. We recognize that it's really important when folks choose to pass that on to the people who follow them. So thank you to the both of you. Mm -hmm. So with that, I just have one last sort of action item. Given the fact that I have not been able to decide what the trigger will be for the Dream Thieves drinking game, (laughs) and because not a lot of it will actually involve Gansey and or Gansey being called an old man, it's fine to go ahead and keep with that. But please get back to us about what you think the drinking game for the Dream Thieves should be. (laughs) So I've put hating Niall Lynch, okay, possibly secrets, okay, or is there some other thing that you think that is an over arcing or constantly running theme in the Dream Thieves that might be fun. Okay. I can't think of anything other than those The ones that I've already, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well? Well, I guess that about wraps it up. So, thank you for joining us today. Our next episode will cover chapters 4 through 7 of the Dream Thieves with a deep dive on a brief overview of Anglo-Saxon history. Right. Which will have to be very brief. It will be very brief, but we do want to touch on it because the gray man talks about his background in Anglo-Saxon poetry. We won't go into that necessarily, but just who were the Anglo-Saxons? What was important about that period of history in the history of Britain? What were the influences? We'll be very brief. So, however, our recording schedule is several weeks ahead of the release schedule. So please do follow us for announcements of what chapters we'll be covering next. So we'll do our best to start getting back into posting things of like we'll be recording, da 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 da. Right. And please send us your thoughts because like with the mailbag episode, we are thinking about reading listener questions on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And so we'd love to hear your contributions, questions, theories, whatever. And you can find us practically everywhere on social media at Raven Girls, R-A-V-I-N-G-I-R-L-S, on Twitter at Raven Girls, on Tumblr at ravengirls.tumblr.com. 
Facebook at facebook.com slash ravengirls and reach us directly at ravengirls at gmail.com. Yes, and you can reach me at substanceparty.tumblr.com or via Gmail at substanceparty with all of the A's taken out, S-U-B-S-T-N-C-E-P-R-T-Y at gmail.com. If we have referenced a post or article in the podcast, we will do our very best to include source links for those in the show notes. And if you've seen our show notes, they are full of links. Mm-hmm. The Raven Cycle and all affiliated properties are copyright Maggie Steve Otter and Scholastic Incorporated. We hope you've enjoyed listening today. And until next time, whoop, whoop, Raven Girls! <laughs>